Hi, you're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine, and I'm joined today by... Matt Hendren. Chris Dring. And Brendan Sinclair. We're here, as always, to discuss the latest games industry news and headlines, uh, starting with the big news this week, which comes from Sony. And actually, uh, Chris Dring here is in a good position to kick off that discussion, uh, given that you wrote a couple uh, nice, meaty articles about it. Chris, what happened? Uh, well, <laughs> That's, that's your, is that, it's, it's quite complicated. There's really, there's two things here. There's actual news, which was the appointments that they announced, um, the promotions, and then there's the um, the interview that we did, which is actually a response to an article we did three weeks ago, um, where which was surprisingly critical, actually for me, anyway. I'm not only that critical uh, after the reveal of PS5, um, and actually, I think that's probably the more. I think that's where you got to start from because the news connects but it's sort of different so the um the uh so we did this article um the article came i got i wrote this article it's called what's what's going on what's going on with playstation and um and it was a um it was a critical piece about where we questioned their strategy around basically not talking this year you know avoiding the big shows not doing that much press they did a little bit but not a lot um and letting xbox basically run around and do all the next gen talking about game pass and X Cloud and and Game Stack and all the other stuff that they're doing, um, and also a criticism of of the decision to restructure the company around because the company's always been three effectively three separate companies: the US, the Europe, and Japan, and they're sort of centralising that now, so it's it's a little bit streamlined. Um, we 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 were and it wasn't based on just you know it wasn't just me sitting in my room going I don't I don't know what Sony are doing. It was a little bit of that, but we'd we'd heard stuff. We'd gone to our investment summits and we were having developers, independent developers, coming to us and saying PlayStation doesn't seem to care about us as much anymore. Um, they're not talking to us as much. People keep leaving and things are changing. We we're also hearing on the ground stuff at PlayStation. Um, people were saying that you know they were a bit frustrated. They no longer quite had to, they had to get everything approved by the US or, or Central's. Technically, it's in the US, and that was causing some frustration. Some people were leaving. Um, all of that coupled together meant, led to that opinion piece, which was where we were like, it feels like a very odd situation for them to be. And PlayStation was dominant in the sales charts. Their games are really highly rated. But um, it didn't feel like, it felt oddly like Xbox was in the ascendancy, PlayStation were not doing very much at all, and it wasn't a, didn't feel right a year from the launch of the new consoles. So that was where it started. And PlayStation's response to that, I have to say, was fantastic. They, they called us up and said, you want to know what's going on with PlayStation? We'll tell you. Um, and that was the interview we did with Jim um, today where he, he kind of he defended the restructure. And it, it's a good answer. They had a robust answer to it. I still think they're running a risk of losing a lot of talented staff because people are going to be frustrated that they don't have the freedom or the autonomy that they had before. But the idea of having to be streamlined so that they can, um, so that they can uh, uh, deal with the ever-changing industry and the cloud and the digitization of things while still having these regional offices that was a good answer, you know, and I don't, it doesn't sound wrong. We won't really, and the thing is with restructures is people are unhappy during restructures. That is always going to happen. So we won't really well, know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's true. But at the same time, we, yes, it is a good answer. And obviously it's great that, you know, Jim Ryan want, wanted to kind of clear the air a little bit, but, you know, but there are also, it is unarguable that people are having trouble getting things signed off, right? That, that's not a thing that didn't happen. Um, so Jim Ryan's answer addresses some parts of it, but not others. I think I think it inevitably is there is 
I, I just feel like in any restructure, this kind of broad and sweeping, uh, you do sacrifice some things to gain other things. So what I think, I do think, you know, obviously what Jim's saying is, is absolutely correct, you know, that they do have to adapt and change to suit the new market. We are, we are going to be dealing with certain new realities about the way Sony functions that is kind of different from the way it was in mm. the past. I think you made the point in your article, Chris, that, you know, that, that, be that as it may, you are going to lose some of that sort of regional targeting, which did help PlayStation in the past. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as people have been working in the industry for a long time, you know, we, I'm going to miss that. You know, having people with, you know, a degree of authority that can actually make calls kind of being at the end of the phone. And now we don't really have that exactly. And while, yeah. you know, while, what Jim's saying makes perfect sense, it, it, do, it does feel like, you know, there is, there is something, a little bit of something lost by that kind of shift towards this more globalised way of thinking. Yeah, and I think the, the other negative, that you know, Xbox is a centralised system, right? And they're big in certain markets and others for the reasons that you just mentioned, that PlayStation can be a little bit more focused. PlayStation, I think they already have a lot of that regional focus in place. So, that's, so I think that they have that advantage of potentially they're not going to lose that necessarily. They're not certainly going to lose Poland because of this. But, but they... I do. What I think is the biggest thing is you're taking stuff away from people. Always easier to give people things and take them away, right? Not give it to them in the first place. And if you've got a marketing team based something in the UK that can, that up until now have been able to put together their own marketing campaigns, be creative, come up with their own PR stuff off their own back, and then and their approval process was their direct boss. Um, and now they're having to basically take stuff that's been given to them from HQ and adapt it and that kind of stuff. It's not the same thing. And I think people who have enjoyed that sort of creative freedom are going to find themselves a bit frustrated. And I think that's that's going to be a that's going to be a, a, a loss. Um, it will it will, you know, in time that will people either come to accept that or they'll move on and new people be put in place. But um, I think that's a bit of a shame as well. Um, and but the, the only promising thing was the news about the appointments. And this guess what's siding into it is that um, if you look at actually who's leading PlayStation now, Jim Ryan's a Brit. He's British. He's Geordie. Um, you've got um, you've got now uh, you've got a European in Herman. You've got a, a, a you know Shuei's Japanese. He actually it's actually quite a, um, a global management team there, and I think that's I think that's it, it, it doesn't solve the problem. It's a little bit more reassuring than I think uh, than. But I see. Yeah, we won't really know if this restructure works or how whether or not it's been beneficial enough. Until at least the launch of PS5, if not well beyond that. Yeah, I, um, I think that the one that, that intrigues me the most is to your to what you were saying earlier about hearing from indies um, that sort of PlayStation appeared to kind of lose interest or sort of refocus in other areas. This is something that Jim actually had. Jim Ryan had a response to. He said it was kind of like they'd shifted their focus over towards VR, which does make sense to a certain degree. But um, we, but again, it's one of those things where you know that be that as it may we definitely did hear from people who are in a position to know for a fact whether sony is as interested in indies as it was before and they claimed not right but now you've got shuhei at the at the head of that which in some sense feels almost like a bit of a bit of a step down for him i, I saw some some odd readings of that move on their part, you know, Shuei being being shifted over for Herman to to focus on smaller studios. Some I, I think it's, you know, objectively a great thing for the indies. Some people read it as uh, you know, as a bit of a, a side swipe of Shu, Shu himself, but I'm not sure I, I kind of follow that no. exactly. 
but but I wonder what what we all think is the significance of that. Like, what does that does that mean? PlayStation is back in terms of its focus on indies. Is, is this kind of like a conceding the fact in some you know subtle way that yes, actually we did take our eye off the ball there there. So here's you know this figurehead of the company now solely dedicated to this area of the business. Uh, at the risk of being cynical. Um... I read this as Sony looked at what they did last time uh, to to get such a a good start in the console generation. And it was basically indies that carried the machine for for the first year or two. Uh, If you look at like the exclusive lineup of games, I think Xbox One, like I would still say they had a better lineup of exclusives than PlayStation 4. Um, But it but it was all the indie games that that were on PlayStation, but not Xbox. That that kind of gave them the edge and got them the momentum until they could get Bloodborne and some of their own games out. So I think looking at this next generation, they're kind of even though everything seems to be delayed to be cross generation now. I think Sony's still kind of like, well, we're going to need content, and that's yeah. going to come from indies, and we have to care about indies again. No, I I and, think that's. And, it just feels it, it feels kind of like um, I don't know, kind of shabby that as the generation went on, after they had this success that was built largely from that base of indies, that they stopped they stopped featuring them as much in their E three sessions, and they stopped catering as much to them, and all that that staff, and there were a lot of people that were like, wow. The, the third-party developer relations people that are really popular with the indies that we speak to that just kind of all left. And they don't, you know, all leave just for their own, like, great career opportunities, which many of them had. They, they also kind of, you know, sense a, a lack of support within the organization for what they're doing and the developers that they're working with. So like that's yeah. I would also maybe and I I feel like a little bit of a novice to this topic just because I know you all have been in in this industry for a lot longer than me and I I don't have kind of the the longer background knowledge of these executives and kind of how their trajectory has gone over the years but I I look at I look at the move uh with Shuhei and I see like Sony has had a lot Sony's had a lot of people moving and leaving lately which as we've said you know in other discussions is you know fairly normal um they've they've talked about this restructuring being ongoing for a while and it's also the end of the console generation so this is the time to do things like that i feel like if uh Shuhei Yoshida didn't feel at least somewhat strongly about taking on this kind of project now would be a very convenient time and place for him to say no sorry i think i'll go do something else and maybe maybe that's a bad reading of it but i i want to be a little bit more optimistic about it sony's not stupid they know that they've been criticized for the back half of this generation of not doing well by indies and both of their competitors particularly you know particularly microsoft um you know have been praised for their work with indies and so while I, I think Brendan's cynical reading isn't a bad one and is unfortunately probably going to be accurate, I, I want to believe that they're taking, th- that this is kind of a show of, yeah, you can trust us to do better this generation. We're putting somebody in charge who, you know, has has had a lot of clout and who will, you know, do do better with this program. We want to, we might, who might be able to build something, like build yeah. a kind of indie program at Sony from the rubble of what they used to have. 
Yeah, but I think it can be both, right? It can be both good for indies and also what Brendan is saying of Sony having kind of use of, of reached out to indies when it kind of worked in their favor and helped indies in that way, right? And then when in, they no longer needed them as much, sort of shied away from it. Actually, you know, when all this was happening, when Shahid Ahmad left Sony, I forget, Chris, maybe you remember the guys, Ben, Ben Andak also left Sony around the same time. I think he's now at Raw Fury. I mean, these were two very kind of pivotal people in that whole indie outreach. And they left very quickly, like one after the other. And there was this I'll, sense. I'll I remember Adam talking. Boys, Nick Adam Sutton, Boys, yeah. yep. Nick Sutton, there, were, yeah. there were other and, people as well. Yeah. And I remember talking to people around this time. Most indies kind of said, well, you know, it's, they didn't feel necessarily aggrieved at PlayStation specifically. Actually, a lot of them were fairly philosophical. It's like this, it's a pendulum swing, right? Like Sony, Sony seed, Sony. Sony did what was best for it at that given moment. And I think, you know, we, we all kind of wish that the large corporations acted uh, differently than the way they do. But generally speaking, it's like we can just shift this money over here now. Maybe that's why we get, you know, God of War, Spider-Man and all these amazing first party games. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's the pendulum swing. But in that, then Microsoft comes and fills the void. And maybe if, if Xbox starts more strongly next generation and all these new studios are firing also there's maybe microsoft stops uh, focusing so much on idea xbox that's at least that was the way it was kind of pitched to me it's like okay well we're indies we'll all just go over to microsoft now and now sony's back so you know i think it's it can both be cynical and at the same time good for indies right like sony does seem to be shuhei would seem to be a symbolic gesture of look we're really kind of paying attention now and that is a good thing for indies but it doesn't mean that Sony wasn't fundamental, that there isn't a cynical reading to be had of it exactly the same time. That's just like the nature of business. Uh, Brendan's right. I mean, this is, I mean, people were questioning, as you were saying, Matt, about um, uh, whether or not people view this as a step down for sure. Right now, it's not. At the beginning of a console cycle, whether you're a Switch or Xbox or PlayStation, you need as many, much content on your platform as possible. And Shuei's job is to put, get as much content on the launch of PS5. It's a really important job. Um, and he loves that job. And you saw all the people tweeting him. You saw the development community reaction to it, um, the news yesterday. It was fantastic. You know, he seemed to be happy about it. And, um, and um, I think it's a really good move. I think he's going to enjoy it. And I think it's a job. So I don't necessarily think it's a step down. Um, the thing is, I will say this. PlayStation always went to our investment sites, right? They always came. And they always had meetings that lasted all day with developers. You know, I, I'm always a bit... When people were saying that PlayStation seemed to step away from indies, they didn't stop. You know, they didn't go, right, we're not working with them anymore. They carried on doing so. And then they just, it just went from that point where they were doing these ridiculous, amazing, massive like montages on their shows to sort of doing a little bit less of that. It just went from being massive levels of support to just sort of the normal level of support. And I think perhaps that's going to swing perhaps a little bit better, you know, when they, when they need to talk, when they've got... And they've got six or seven AAA games to promote on stage at E3. They probably take the priority. When they don't, maybe, you know, they, they, a few indie games get in there. You know, Xbox has been really good with indie games lately. They don't have a lot of game, AAA games to talk about, and it's just the way the cycle runs. Um, but, I, you know, I, yeah, I think you're right. And Brendan's right. It's going to be really important at the birth of PS5, the indie, that indie support. Um, yeah. I, just, I just will take the idea that they weren't as supportive. Yeah, there are lots of people left. But then Xbox have... You know, they've had a few indie people come and go as well. And Switch has had, you know, Switch lost a load of indie people. And it's like second, you know, people like Ed Valiente and Tim Simmons. And, and um, they've all gone from Nintendo. And Nintendo are still very much loved by indies at the moment, mainly because I suspect they're selling very well. But um, 
but but, but isn't that another example of a platform you know what you're saying chris right that Nintendo is launching the Switch and it's got its own software, but you know, it really, really helps to support indies as much as you reasonably can at this stage in the cycle. I mean, if, if we cast our minds back to the, the start of PS4, what Brendan was saying, you know, the, one of the reasons why No Man's Sky managed to achieve the levels of kind of visibility it did was because it really, really, Sony needed a game that it could kind of put forward as like this amazing, I mean, and you know, and then some of that kind of expectation around No Man's Sky was built by very, very public de- demos and very flashy demos of a game that fundamentally was like an early access title being made by four people. It didn't look like it and it wasn't presented like it, you know, but, but that's, it's something that the that, that PlayStation needed. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel like everything that everybody said is absolutely spot on, but when you've got a company as large and influential as Sony involved, but that's, all of these things are true to a degree, you know, it's, it's not, it, 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 there's just, there's too much on the line and it's too fundamental to the way the business operates for, for, for only one version of events to be the case. I've, I've got two things with the, the next generation that I'm wondering about, and they're kind of working in opposite directions. Like, I'm curious if indies are going to be more important in the next generation uh, because we're not going to have HD remasters be as big a draw this time around, considering that the systems are backwards compatible. So we can just slip in the, you know, the same disc anyways and, and enjoy it. And I'm also wondering if indies are going to be uh, less important this time around, because I don't get the sense that uh, indie developers right now are looking at the Xbox One or the PS4 and saying, wow, this is just not powerful enough to do what we need to do. So I expect there to be a, still a, a, you know, a pretty healthy stream of indie releases on those platforms. And if someone is making a game, are they really going to target, are indies really going to target the PlayStation 5 or the Xbox Scarlet or whatever exclusively, like without supporting the current generation with the massive installed base that it has? Well, I think that might be why we've got Shuhei in place, right? To maybe open the checkbook and get some people making indie stuff for PS5. I mean, that's possibly it. Um, I know I know that one of the things that we've heard a lot, which which kind of precipitated Chris's article, is that, you know, people were... that the, the checkbook was kind of closing from Sony. Mm. And maybe I think, yeah, I think that makes sense, because especially with what Brennan's saying, if I'm, if I'm an indie developer, I'm not... Um, they probably would have a different answer than me. But if I was an indie developer and I'm looking at this console generation shift and I mean, I, I guess I don't really know what Xbox is doing, um, but Sony, I, I know we're kind of talking about this in the sense that it might be like launch the PS4 where they didn't have a ton of big releases ready. And so they did lean on indies a lot. I, I get the sense that that may not be the case this time. Um, they've had they've had kind of this year and a half, it will probably be about two years where big releases on the PS4 have really, for the most part, kind of slowed to a crawl. I mean, we just, we have Death Stranding today as we're talking, but it there's really not a lot else in the pipeline leading up to the PS5 launch, which makes sense, right? But having had two kind of two years of, of quietness, I wouldn't be surprised if they did come out swinging with quite a few exclusives at launch. And no. if I'm an indie looking at that, then, you know, Maybe I'll just make something for the Switch or something. So my thoughts on, I don't think PlayStation are going to have a very strong launch lineup. I mean, they might have a platformer or maybe, I mean, 
if you look the at platformer, <laughs> they'll, they'll have a they'll have a they'll have a little big planet or a ratchet and clank or something. Sure, but the um, but I look at I look at and maybe a knack, who knows? Um, but um, ah. I, I look I look at I look at the line. I look at the the developers that PlayStation have. A gorilla, they they did Horizon, so a couple of years into that, I'm sure. But they've just helped Kidio Kojima with Death Stranding. You know, Spider-Man from Insomniac was only a year ago. God of War was only in it. These games take three, four, five years to make. You know, what studios are three, four, five years into their next product? Maybe, maybe Blue Polyphony. Point. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's a few maybe, but I just think, I, I actually don't, I look at, I think Xbox are the ones that have done very little for a long time now. That um, is true. Um, you know, we've not had a Halo game. We know they're getting a Halo game. We've not had one for absolutely ages. And Fours has taken a year off and you think, and Rare are probably building up to a new game and so you I and you are probably going to get a new announcement XO19 um so I suspect that when it comes to first party games there won't be a great deal but actually going to Brendan's point I think actually indies will have a bigger role to play but not because of the move to platforms but because of the move to subscription so I think with PlayStation Now and Game Pass becoming so much more important and the need to have content into those systems in order to into those into those services in order to sell as many um uh, uh, get so many subscribers as possible. Indies are going to be really important for that, I think. And um, I think they already are being very important to Game Pass. So I suspect that there's that element to it as well, which is part of the changing nature of, of this business. Yeah, and f- further to that, I would also say that just when we talk about first party with companies like PlayStation and Xbox, we're, we're mainly talking about AAA games. And I think the re- one of the reasons why indies will have still have to play a pretty significant role in the next generation is simply because like the size of AAA games is much bigger. If you go on to Insomniac's uh, Wikipedia page and look, they, de- they developed about a dozen games for PlayStation 3. They developed like two or three for PlayStation This stuff is taking a lot longer. The games are bigger. There's fewer of them. So, in some way, we're making two or three games a year for PlayStation 3. Uh, now they've got one every three. And like some, the new content, I mean, while these games last longer, some of them are more service-oriented, they have more content coming after release. Uh, fundamentally, there are fewer of them coming out of uh, Sony First Party. I mean, that, I mean, that's largely gut feeling, but, you know, I was a journalist for the whole of the PlayStation 3 generation, and there just were more games. There were more games coming out of the bigger companies, and now though, that, that bulk, that heft, is really coming from the indie community, and that's not going to go away. In fact, if anything, it may even become more pressing a need because it doesn't look like anyone's kind of trying to rein the budgets in exactly. Um, yeah. But there, there, there is a, you know, but, but like, like Chris says, and I think this is one of the interesting developments is, whether the rise of subscription services means that we're going to see a filling in of the gap between the smaller indie stuff and the bigger AAA stuff, because you know a company like Double Fine is going to be right at home on the streaming service because they can make you know sort of mid-budget uh, narrative-driven games that are about eight or nine hours long, and that that suits Game Pass down to the ground, you know, because it's a variety of content, and that's that's something that's going to be an interesting thing that might, might define the way we think about content, but particularly for this generation. And the early part of the, the of this generation, the indies were necessary because, as Chris said, it does take sort of three, four years to make a game these days. And very, very few studios operating at the high end are able to, to hit one. Mm. I do no have a question really for you, Chris. Mm-hmm. Did we ever find out what happened to Sean Layden? like i i I get i get all the you know kind of chill out it's the end of the it's the end of the generation people are making movements thing but can we agree that the sean laden thing was weird well i still don't know what happened to andrew house so let's 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 go back a few years um 
Um, this I, I suspect there's a lot of executives overlapping, right? There's a lot of um, there's a lot. He was also chairman of Worldwide Studios. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. When it was a bit like it was, it was uh, I don't, you know, it, you know, no. anything could have happened. He could have he could have had an amazing job offer, and he's on a seat, which is the reason why we don't know where he's gone. Um, he could have. He could have fallen out with management. It could be that they're restructuring and they found out that actually his role isn't overly necessary anymore. It, you know, any of that could have happened. I mean, or, um, you know, or hey, he might have like checked his bank balance and realized, you know what, I don't actually need to work anymore. Maybe yeah. I should <laughs> play golf for the rest of my life because that's what I would do. Well, it was just the weird way it was announced. It was kind of dropped out of nowhere with a tweet from the yeah, PlayStation account and no one else has said anything since. I feel like if it was just a simple kind of retirement thing, he probably would have had a, a nice, warm thank you for everything. Like a Reggie kind of statement prepared. But yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah, it's real yeah, weird. I'm interested to see where that man resurfaces. Hmm. Yeah, well, PlayStation said not, the PlayStation haven't been very talkative. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Did you just say PlayStation's not being talkative after you had an interview? Well, that's yeah, Brian. I got the interview after I wrote a piece saying they're not being very talkative. So it's, um, <laughs> I've got to stand by my. They're, they're being more talkative now. I guess um, we're about to find out if they listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> has Has PlayStation ever treated their their outgoing executives with the warm, fuzzy, soft focus lens? Because I, I remember Ken Kutaragi, and that did not seem to be. Uh, that 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 was more of a Viking funeral for someone who is still alive. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I, you know, you're right. You're right, though. I don't remember. Fair though. PlayStation. I look at all their execs, and they've all been there since the start. It's always like even Andrew House. You know, he'd been there since he was there ninety. He was there at ninety three at the start. Jim Ryan started in nineteen ninety four. It's his twenty fifth year as PlayStation. Sean Layden been there since the beginning. You know, it's all. They're so it's so um and then when I look at people in the country managers like Warwick Light in the UK, for instance, they've been there for 20, 25 years. It's like it, it's that company has got a level of loyalty which I've 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 genuinely never seen. It's 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 so every single time someone leaves, oh it's a 25-year veteran, but they're all 25-year veterans. Um but yeah, I guess but there comes a point, right? You got to the end of PS4. He's I think Sean Layden's part in shot was Insomniac, right? That was his that was his swan song. Got Insomniac over the line, right? I'm off, see you later. Um, so uh, that's, how, that's how I look at it. Well, we probably ought to be getting on. Um, the other big event of technically last week was BlizzCon. And there were a lot of announcements out of that. Diablo 4, new WoW expansion, uh, Overwatch 2. And I think Matt wanted to talk about Overwatch 2 specifically um, in terms of what it means to make a sequel to a service-based game, which I think is interesting. It's been brought up by a couple execs um, during some of the financial results we've heard over the last couple of weeks. But Matt, Overwatch 2, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think in, in many ways it was just the fact that they're, you know, we all went into BlizzCon kind of targeting the possible uh, tumultuous response the company might receive the protests in the crowd all of this stuff the the weak apologies and on some level all of that definitely came to pass but you know i was at a conference when this happened but also it was it was difficult to miss that they actually made some pretty big and significant announcements and i think the one that probably grabs most people's attention is diablo 4 because hey it looks like diablo 2 a 20 year old game or whatever but uh, Rob, um, and Rob Farhi, as he often does, uh, wrote an opinion piece for us, and um, he was made some interesting points about Overwatch 2, though ones I hadn't really considered before, um, because I, I guess when I heard about Overwatch 2, I just thought it was a bit odd, because it seemed like, you know, Overwatch is a service-based shooter game, 
Um, and there are many of those around at the moment, and or, or just service-based games in general. And you know, there's no League of Legends two, and there's no you know Minecraft two, and there's a Fortnite chapter two, but fundamentally it's just Fortnite really. But the, here's Overwatch two, which is going to be a full-price premium release, but one that doesn't fundamentally leave the old community behind. Um, and Rob, Rob's argument is actually this is pretty much the, the perfect way to handle this stuff, that, that, the, that the era of service-based games has really challenged companies that need to monetize sequels still, that need to monetize uh, major dumps of content. You know, the, you get a game like Destiny 2, they're giving away, they're, they're, they're charging for expansion packs, but you get the impression that they don't really see a Destiny 3 coming anytime soon. Mm. Uh, yeah, Overwatch. so I do want Overwatch is a five-year-old game, and we've already got a sequel. And I felt that the response to to there being an Overwatch two was pretty much divisive. Rob's argument is 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 this that Overwatch two is effectively just a it is just an expansion pack in the true sense of the word, in that it's going to focus on PVE and a story-driven game, while leaving the kind of the PvP stuff that was central to the first Overwatch game still in the hands of them and feedback all of the advances in graphics and gameplay and so on to that original community and eventually merge it all together. And maybe this is how, how, the, how you operate service-based games in the kind of the sequelized structure that we're all used to. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't pay attention necessarily to the, the wider consumer point of view as much as maybe I should. But what was the response to Overwatch 2 uh, out there in the, the world of game players? Well, I did want to point out um, a couple things. I, I think your your point is is good all over. I I do think we don't actually know that Overwatch Two is going to be a full priced game. There's been some speculation on that, and I think that I think that is kind of we don't know the price on it at all. And I think um, that's kind of been a big question because there was an interview. I don't have it pulled up right now, but I believe it was with Kotaku uh, where Jeff Kaplan told them that the plan is eventually to merge Overwatch 1 and Overwatch 2 into the same client um, with the idea being that you have Overwatch 1 and then you can pay whatever the price is and just get access to the PVE mode and like one or two other features. But they are fundamentally the same game. And I think... I. I haven't seen a, I, I'm, like like you said, I've seen mostly reception to Diablo 4, and because I'm kind of a WoW player, I've seen, seen a lot of WoW Shadowlands reception. I've seen, I, I think mostly the thing around Overwatch is I've seen a lot of confusion. I think a lot of people are kind of confused as to, like, they're excited about the idea about it because people have wanted the story um, c- component. Because Overwatch is, Overwatch is not a story game, but but Blizzard has been making this kind of lore around it for the last several years, and they've done that very effectively with like these really great like like Pixar quality, really good little short videos, these comics, like all these other things. People are excited about that, and they've wanted that in the game for so long, and now they're finally getting it. But they're finding out that they may have to pay we don't know sixty dollars, thirty dollars, no idea to get that on top of what they already have. Um, you know, is that going to be a big enough upgrade from the original game? And then what form will that story content take? Like people still don't know. At first, it seemed like it would be like a proper story campaign. But, um, you know, after interviews have come out now, it seems like maybe it's going to be more just sort of like the event missions that they had in the first game, which were good, but not like mind blowing. And so I think I think the response has mostly been kind of, at least online, has been kind of confused because we don't we don't quite know what we're getting and it still seems to be fairly early days on it too, right? Like somebody asked Jeff Ka- Kaplan at Blizzard, you know, what, when is this coming out? And he's like, I don't know. Don't ask me. 
Yeah, yeah, and I, th I think one one of the other things Kaplan was saying was, and I think this speaks to a way in which the the structure of these games, which works from a business point of view, is really at odds with the creative process. Is that how frustrating it was to be kind of locked into the update cycle for Overwatch, and everybody on the team who were all like really great at their jobs, they work for Blizzard, you know, for God's sake, um, they have all of these amazing ideas, but they can't do anything with them because. You just have to update this game. And so effectively, Overwatch, the update cycle of Overwatch slowed down, and this was perceived by the community, and it was an issue within the community. But what was happening was they were developing Overwatch 2, which is presumably something they're going to charge for. And I think this is where it gets a bit murky for me, because effectively service to the old game was kind of dried up a little bit while they were making a product which they're going to charge for. And that kind of, again, sort of, that goes against the contract that seems to exist between people operating a service-based game and the players, which is that, you know, so long as there's a big community, these, these updates shouldn't be drying up to make another product that you pay for. All of that should somehow still be going on while the, uh, the updating of the original game still exists. Hmm. Uh, I, the Overwatch stuff, because I, I did, a, I never, I've never actually played the game, but I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of uh, interviews with Activision at the time, and they were they were a bit taken aback by how popular the characters proved to be. I mean, they all thought they'd be cool and people would like them, but they proved so popular. And I think that's probably what's excited them. They've gone, we could do a proper story game here. You know, that's why they've done all these comics. You, you, Rebecca mentioned the law. They've built up these sort of comic books and web series and biographies, and it's done so well for them. They're selling lots of toys for Overwatch, and they're sort of going... This is weird for a game that's a multiplayer game, right? It doesn't really have any story to it. And I know other games do this. You know, Sea of Thieves, which is one of my favorites, does a lot of outside lore. And they've gone, well, let's bring that into a game. And I think if, if Overwatch 2 is ultimately a story-driven Overwatch game with some updates to the multiplayer, which benefit the previous Overwatch game, I think, again, I think, as Rob says, it's quite a cool idea. I actually felt a bit sorry for Destiny in a way, because I always look at, I look at Destiny as a prime example of a game that crossed... It came out of the birth of PS4, and it, at that time, it was the biggest new IP launch of all time. It was the same year as Titanfall and Watch Dogs. What a great year for new games. And, and, it, was, and it sold so many copies in a box. And then the industry started to change the service-based model almost fully. Which, and then and it went from, and then, so they, they, then they treated Destiny 2. And I guess you can understand why, in trying to keep one foot in one world and one foot in the other. But the reality was we'd all moved on now to this, to this service-based thing. I think it's really, I think it's interesting. That you, I, I have to wonder if Overwatch 2 is, is more reaction the fact they wanted a story um and it's a and it's and it's mostly that yeah i mean it um, raised the question for me was just yeah i mean this is a this is always an issue right like how popular had overwatch remained i mean it makes a lot of noise in the esports realm with the overwatch league um i don't know quite know whether that actually is as successful as it as it was sort of set up to be initially um there's this 50 million players figure but i'm pretty sure they were fairly close to that quite a long time ago um, and in general, I think you reported on the Activision Blizzard um, results this week, Brendan. And, and I think one of your headline was, you know, sliding engagement. And I wonder, you know, Overwatch 2, however, however elegantly or innovative, innovatively they're employing it, I, I do wonder whether that is in itself. They needed an Overwatch 2 to a degree. Like they needed the game to be different because, like you say, Chris, they have... They realized maybe their strength was the characters rather than necessarily the part that they thought would carry them over. And, and they need to kind of double down on that stuff to, to re-engage people in, in the experience. Yeah, I mean, like if you, if you look at the numbers, because they were down engagement, uh, the monthly active users were down year over year, uh, both last quarter 
and this quarter. And it makes sense for Activision since they don't have Destiny to work with this time. But for the Blizzard side of the business, it was also down significantly over 20%, if I remember right, this quarter. And I mean, that's not that's not because of World of Warcraft, because WoW Classic came out and, uh, you know, re-energized that that part of the business. Um, I, I don't know, you know, Diablo, Starcraft or Hearthstone, um, if anything, if anything happened in those brands uh, recently to kind of explain like losing that much of uh, what had been you know, a pretty, pretty loyal, long running customer base there. Uh, Cause this is that their quarter ended just before the blitz chung ban. I'll note. Um, and then uh, yeah, overwatch is just kind of like the overwatch seems like the most likely thing to, to attribute for blizzards numbers, their engagement just being down for the last half year, basically. I do and think that the the discrepancy between it maybe being a popular esport and not being a popular game to play can be explained at least in part by the fact that Blizzard has dumped a lot of money and time and energy into creating like local franchise slots um, in various cities for Overwatch League and has done I think a pretty good job of that. And so I think that I've I've talked to several people at Esports Bar that mentioned them specifically and just kind of talked in general about how having having things set up in local cities uh really helped with esports engagement like it was a really big deal and so i think i think that discrepancy can be at least somewhat explained by that part yeah like they're doing uh, a lot of things until... different from other esports leagues but yeah you're right yeah. that overwatch as a game is uh flagging yeah well i think it, it will be an interesting experiment at the very least in how because i think you know we're, we're all used to we're, we're I mean, myself personally i'm still used to a manner of thinking about games which is sort of sequelized i guess where the game is released is popular it becomes less popular and then you get a new version of the same thing right and the service-based uh, model does kind of is a significant challenge to that but for some reason in my head i still feel like all of these games fortnite you know PUBG, you name it they're all going to eventually lose their luster and kind of dissipate and maybe settle into a kind of a much smaller community but they're not going to remain the big games forever i mean I, I may be i may be wrong-headed on that there might just be kind of you know decades of playing games in a certain way not being quite able to adapt myself to the new the new way things work but, you know, maybe this will be an interesting experiment in how do you get give, you know, a game a kick in the ass when it needs it, when effectively it's a service and you don't want to kind of have a clean break and build a community from scratch. Now, what I, what I thought we saw this year with Fortnite and the Black Hole event in Season 2 was a pretty genius way of maintaining interest in a product that was at its very peak. But, you know, but what do you do with a product to significantly change it without leaving 50 million accounts behind? Um, maybe this yeah. is what Overwatch 2 will show us. I think that's a good question. And I think we've actually heard a couple other people mention that in the last few weeks. Um, Yves Guillemot brought it up uh, when he was talking about uh, Ghost Recon Wildlands and Breakpoint a couple of weeks ago during the financials. Um, he like specifically said that in that case, they... They probably, I mean, he didn't, he didn't say this outright, but he, he kind of implied that they had moved too quickly on making Breakpoint, basically, because Wildlands was still being, it was still like fairly successful. They were making a lot of money off of it. People were still very active in that game and they made Breakpoint. And what he did say is that they didn't differentiate it enough from Wildlands. So in that case, they jumped the gun and they made the sequel to the live game way too quickly. Um, and then yesterday I asked 
uh, Strasdunek about it uh, before the Take Two financials because they, you know, also have these live games that they're you know trying to maintain, and they, you know, they did Red Dead Redemption Two, which was also you know, I mean that that has a whole different online component, but um, they're they're making these you know sports franchises year after year, and they're doing all these other things. And he basically said that there isn't there currently isn't a rule book for how you create transitions or new products um, in live services. Like everyone's just kind of feeling it out as they go. Um, in one case for them, they, they launched NBA 2K online too in China while continuing to support the original and that worked for them. But he says, you just kind of got to, everybody's still figuring it out. And I think it will be interesting to see how everybody just kind of figures it out over the next several years. My favorite way of doing it is, so is you build a game, um, you make a service-based game, you do a big update, you call it 2.0, like, like Fortnite just did. Then you do another version, you do 3.0. It's been going for 10 years, re-release the one that you made at the beginning and call it old school. And um, and then and then suddenly you've got a new game out, um, and that's and that's how WoW and stuff do it. Interestingly, I do think there's actually some games that I think behave like the old school model that need to stop. Like I'm a big, you know, I'm a big Nintendo fan. I actually think Mario Kart and Smash Brothers needs to stop acting like you know we need a sequel. You don't need a sequel. To Hasn't Smash Brothers, Smash Brothers stopped? Well, it might have done, but the, the thing is, when they announced Smash Brothers, they said like we're going to do five pieces of DLC, here, and, uh, and that's it. You can buy the season pass, you get five characters, and only in the last one they did say, okay, we're going to do more than five characters. Yeah, you're going to do more than one. keep going, keep going forever, you know, because that game doesn't need a you don't need a, you do not need a sequel to that game. Brennan, where yeah, have you that, been? That they just require... had a forty-five minute Nintendo Direct Terry somebody this week. Yeah, they are Terry Bogard. Terry legend, Bogard, sorry, the, wolf. the legend. Come on. Sorry. That would require it, it would require such a fundamental shift from Nintendo, right? Because the, that would require the next Nintendo console to be fundamentally backwards compatible in the way that we, you know, that we we are promised that the next PlayStation, Xbox are going to be. So that on on whatever Nintendo console comes next, the community of Smash Brothers there will be able to play the same game with the community on the Switch. That seems. I mean, I. I'm not, you know, Expo on Nintendo, but that does seem like very non-Nintendo thing to do. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But it's, yeah, um, but, but you know, next Smash Brothers on the next console should just be Smash Brothers Ultimate, and then you just keep. I going. am, I am really interested now in the licensing arrangements for all those non-Nintendo characters. Oh yeah, and if they <laughs> allow the game to exist in perpetuity or be re-released on new hardware or anything like that, because that is just. If 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 not, and an ultimate ever kind of like goes dark, it is not coming back in mm. any way, shape, or form. There's just well, too much tied into that game that other people own. Yeah, well, it's interesting with that because um, I I found out that I, I believe is the case that Nintendo don't pay a penny for any of those IP. They're all um, they're, those IP want to be in Smash Brothers because it's so popular. So you know, it's like it's like. Um, yeah, you know, it's something that Phil Spencer alluded to. Banjo, <laughs> Nintendo didn't pay <laughs> to get Banjo in that game. They wanted Banjo in that game. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's what that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. But they have managed to keep all the char- all the characters are in it. Are all the ones from the original all the way up to modern day? So um, yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, speaking of Nintendo uh, making jumps to next <laughs> generations um, again and again in this case. I wanted to close today with some very sad news, everyone. Um, Just Dance 2020 launched a couple of days ago on the Nintendo Switch, the uh, Xbox One, uh, PS4, and the Wii. And I, re- I saw a lot of people talking and asking, you know, you know, oh, they're going to keep releasing it on the Wii, haha. So I reached out to Ubisoft, and Ubisoft unfortunately said that Just Dance 2020 is the last game they're publishing on the Wii. 
Uh, Nintendo didn't confirm anything, but given that Just Dance has been the only game to release on the Wii for the last several years, um, I think the last non-Ubisoft game on the Wii was in 2017, uh, I think it seems like the Wii is really well and truly dead. Um, Gentlemen, we got to see it off in style. Tell me about your favorite Wii games. Well, I want to open up first by saying that the last couple of mentions of Ubisoft really paints it as this company that finds it very, very difficult to not just keep on doing the same thing again and again. Like, they end up making a sequel to uh, Wildlands before it's ready, because what else are they going to do? It's been two years since the last ones. We've got to make another one, right? And, like, they should be making Just Dance forever for the Wii, because what else are we going to do? You know, it's two years (laughs) has passed, whatever. Yeah, but they quit making it on the Wii U. They they released (laughs) on the Wii, but not the Wii U, which tells you an awful lot about the Wii U. They've got they've got all these teams sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They need to give them something to do. Um, yeah, no, my 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 favorite uh, Wii 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 game um, is uh, Silent Hill: Shattered Memories. Uh, this is a fairly obscure one. I think it's sold absolutely terribly, um, and it's notable among uh, in addition to just being a very cool and interesting game for being having lead designer Sam Barlow of uh, who went on to make her story and telling lies. And it's a really uh, interesting game where it, I think if it, if it wasn't the very opening scene, it was like after the prologue or whatever, where you kind of you're in a psychiatrist's office and you keep on coming back to this psychiatrist's office and he gives you a test. You have to choose answers and those answers change what the game then becomes. So your favorite color, then the, the, the color you say is your favorite, then 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 appears more regularly throughout the game. That, that's a very kind of low level example. There's some more kind of uh, intriguing ways in which that plays out. And it's just a very, I mean, you know, this, these are not the sort of games that the Wii was ever, ever the, the Wii was ever any real, really good at, I suppose, this kind of like narrative driven uh, horror game. But it was very, very um, sort of interesting, interestingly designed intriguing use of motion controls. I mean, I don't know if anyone actually played this one. I think it sold like 20 copies or something like that. And it was uh, oh, well, one, well, like a, a, gro- a growing stack of evidence that, you know, trip, uh, that Nintendo games did brilliantly on Wii and everybody else did extremely poorly. And it kind of resulted in a lot in a la- lack of third party support for Wii U that sort of lingered a little bit, even into Switch era. But that one is um, absolutely cracking. I don't, I don't know if anyone's got a Wii, but, you know, I'm sure you can pick it up for... 50p or something in a bargain bin and it's well worth a look and you know again it's um early sam barlow before before he broke out and became his own his own man i never owned a wii actually i had a i bought a gamecube uh by smashing a piggy bank when i was a a (laughs) preteen and i i i dragged that gamecube with me for a really long time and then just switched over to the ds uh when the time came i never owned a wii but i did have a wii u and i played um they nintendo did an okay job i wish they had done more but they did release some Wii games, um, like as I don't know, they, they were like they were on discs, and they were like specifically like to be played on the Wii U or something, if I remember right. Maybe but anyway, I, control? whatever it was, I I really don't remember what it was. But I played a, I played Mario Galaxy, the first one, and I I think Matt's point that uh, Nintendo, you know, their first party stuff on the Wii did brilliantly. Like Mario Galaxy was fantastic. I had such a fun time with it. I love the control scheme. I haven't really. I, I don't love, Chris was berating me the other day because I don't love 2D Mario games, but I really do love the 3D Mario games. And I thought that one did some really fun things with perspective and puzzles and space and stuff like that. Um, never played Galaxy 2, wish I had. I would, I really wish they would uh, port the first Galaxy to the Switch because I think the Joy-Cons would be really good for that style yeah, of gameplay. Like, cool, that, yeah. just be absolutely perfect. I'm 
want that game really bad on the Switch. But yeah, I, I that was I think one of the only Wii games I played besides Wii Sports in my college dorm room. Um, but which was also brilliant. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Brendan, Chris, come on next. Oh, uh, um, Brendan's got uh, a negative, cynical opinion. That's why he wants to go last. Um, the um, iChat memory is great. Um, uh, actually, it's actually I think the best Silent Hill game released in well since the second one maybe um and it's um and so i actually think that's great um and uh uh and i just think there are actually i think there's quite that first year of we i remember this is before i was a games journalist and i was a tester and i remember queuing up outside oxford game in oxford street to get charles martin a to sign my copy of galaxy and and I just remember WarioWare and, and a Twilight Princess and, and Wii Sports is a fantastic game. Um, but my favourite game, and interesting to contradict everyone about how Nintendo games always do well and no one else does, here's a Nintendo game that flopped, um, Excite Truck, um, which is, uh, if you go on Metacritic, one of the highest reviewed critics who reviewed that highly is Nintendo who gave it a 9 out of 10. That's me. Um, <laughs> uh, the... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a um it is a game where you basically controlled trucks and you just used to used to go through woods and trees and you had to dodge you got stars for complete you, you, coming first didn't necessarily win you the race you had to get stars and you got scores you got basically high scores by dodging trees going between trees getting big boosts performing tricks in the air in a truck um and um and it was it was really arcadey. It was incredibly fun. And I played that. And I'm, I played that. I, in fact, talking about it now means I'm probably going to play it again very soon. Um, I played that for years and years and years. My friends came over used to play it all the time. It's an absolutely delightful game. And it was so great. They did a sequel called Excite Bots, which, and this is where the biggest tragedy of that, like, that generation and it is a tragedy, is Excite Bots never made it to Europe. So I've never played the sequel to the oh, greatest Wii game ever Chris. made. Um, oh. And every single time, although they've all gone now, whenever I sit down with the Nintendo guys and I say, I say to them, I say, you know, the worst thing, I even do it now. I sat down with the UK marketing director recently at, at uh, E3. In fact, it was, well, it wasn't that recently. And I said to him that uh, the biggest thing that you were uh, mistake you guys ever made was not release excite bots in the UK. And he said, Chris, do you know how many people bought excite truck? Nobody, <laughs> nobody bought a side truck. See, I'm looking at Metacritic right now, and according to Nintendo Joe, it is, and I quote, well worth a purchase. So, evidently, Chris, <laughs> you didn't do a very good job of convincing anybody to, uh, oh. to actually <laughs> No, that's I will back that up though. I, we we used to play Excite Truck quite a lot at the office I was working at, at the time. It's a very good game. I really enjoyed it. You know, it, certainly like, you know the it, the Wii was pretty good at games like that that were just pure fun. And Excite Truck is an example. All right, Brendan, rain on our parade. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So first, I I will say that Super Mario Galaxy and Super Mario Galaxy Two were excellent. Thank you. Those. Those are maybe the the best that Nintendo managed uh, on on the system, but the the games that I like most fondly remember are um, all third party. Weirdly enough, so one of them, and and this one, this was a cool game, and I'm mostly just happy that it released. Um, but I didn't I didn't play a ton of it, but I liked what I played of it. Was Blastworks. Build, trade, destroy. I think it was published by Majesco, but it was a Kentacho shooter, and it was just like the 
the least financially viable decision I can imagine to, to make that thing on the Wii. And <laughs> I, I, I appreciated the heck out of it. I'm glad that exists. Uh, Blazing Lasers on the Virtual Console, the TurboGrafx-16 shooter, that thing swallowed a lot of my childhood, and the Wii's Virtual Console was the first time that I had an opportunity to go revisit it, and it still held up, and it was fantastic. House of the Dead Overkill, I That's really liked that at the time. Uh, I'm, I, I think trying to, to walk that line with like a grindhouse you know exploitation film uh level of of satire or humor is like very specific to the to the person on the other end of it like the the player and i don't know if i would appreciate it as much now as as i did then but uh i did like that and then and then maybe the best of them um i didn't even play the wii version that much because it was a port but Williams Pinball Hall of Fame is <laughs> absolutely like hands down the best pinball game I'd ever played. I I lost so much time to the Xbox 360 version of it. And it's it's just fantastic. The ball physics are so perfect. The every every table on there was just like so well. I didn't rec- I didn't remember all of them from when I was a kid, but all the ones that I did remember were so perfectly recreated in every every aspect. Just that 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 thing need needed to succeed more than it did. It needed to be bought on absolutely every platform. So good. Williams Pinball was definitely the great the great crisis and the great the great lost classic of the Wii era. I think we can all agree. <laughs> That and that, and, um, you know what? You know, I was, I was sitting there. I've just Google. I've got Dead Space Extraction. I forgot about that. I love. Oh that no, game. that was a, see. That was my second choice. That was a oh. great one. That was really, really good. Like we, ah. we had like some some pretty cool like shooting gallery type games, and that was probably the best. Of <laughs> it had some pretty cool spinoffs because it wasn't up to doing the normal version <laughs> of these franchises. Do you remember? Do you remember Spielberg's Boom Blocks? Boom blocks, yeah. Yeah, that was that was I really enjoyed that. I remember that. Yeah, and like I, there was early platinum like Mad World, that black and white game yeah. with like red blood, that was cool. I really think that like we would actually be quite an interesting comp because I can really struggle to think of very many games. I remember I must have played dozens of games on the Wii back. Zack and Wiki around. Yeah, yeah. But like no but there were so rooms. many games that just couldn't possibly function anywhere else that it would be this really weird like time capsule to go back and experience mm. again, I think. How lots many of, of you guys have like failed experiments? How many of you guys have like dusty cabinets full of a bunch of Wii accessories and balance boards and nonsense somewhere? I found my balance board the other oh. day when I was cleaning out the room. <laughs> what was the I use I use my totally balance board game? I use my balance board every single day. Um it's a little like riser under my work desk. Uh, for, <laughs> which, oh. which helps with, with posture. Like it it literally Every single day, I get some use out of it. It's it's fantastic. Wow. When we we had two Wii balance boards gathering dust uh, when I was still with my ex partner, and we fostered kittens, and they were not big enough to climb into the litter box on their own. So we made stairs out of Wii <laughs> balance boards for them to climb into the litter box. <laughs> oh, yeah, we threw them away. Things were probably filthy. No, we threw them away. We don't have them. The cats. Well, no, God, Brendan. Good <laughs> I, I will say as well, the Wii, the Wii port of Resident Evil 4 remains the best version of Resident Evil 4. 
I'm gonna that's, Oof, that's my controversial. That's, that's my I'm gonna say that. Well, gentlemen, I think we have been here maybe a little bit too long. I know Chris and Matt are in days and Friday, so go out and uh, pour one out for the Wii. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms. Uh, once you're on that good podcast platform, because they're subscribing, uh, so it'll let you know whenever another episode appears. And you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz. Thanks, everybody. Bye.